Uh, Father, we thank you for this great privilege to open your word and to hear your voice, to hear you speak to us. I do pray that as we listen to all that you have revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, particularly this morning as we look at the coming rule and reign of the Antichrist, the exact opposite of everything that we have sung about this morning of your glory and purity and holiness and forgiveness and all of those things. Pray that you would open our hearts to be not only listening but discerning, to be aware that this present age, this present earth is being prepared for destruction. And this is true, but the great reality beyond that is what we have been singing of, which is a new creation, which is a glorious uniting of your redeemed with you and your presence forever and ever. As we are clothed and forever in the sun, how we long for that rich, unending fellowship forever and ever. Bless your words this morning. Use them in our hearts as you have designed. Apply them by your spirit. We pray these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew 24, 15. Matthew 24, 15. Mike, is this something I'm doing? Okay. Matthew 24, 15. As, of course, I mentioned in the prayer, we are once again going to be concerning ourselves with the ministry of this coming evil one, the coming Antichrist, as he is known. Mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, by Jesus, particularly in verse 15, Matthew 24, 15. Now, by way of introduction, let me remind us that Satan has wanted to usurp God's rule. He's wanted to steal God's glory ever since sin first entered into his heart. And ever since... Is this better? We'll go with that. Okay. To remind us, Satan has wanted to usurp God's glory. He's wanted to usurp God's rule. He's wanted to steal from God the worship that is due His name. And that has been the case ever since sin first entered his heart in heaven and he was cast out down to earth. He has always then prowled around about like a roaring lion seeking who of God's people and God's image bearers he may devour, using the language of 1 Peter 5.8. And there is even now in the world the spirit of Antichrist. There is the mystery of lawlessness that is at work. And in the final days that God has decreed for this earth and this present age, days in which he will pour out his wrath and his judgment on his rebellious image bearers, he has also decreed the rise of a final world leader and a false religious leader, the false prophet, who will be directly under the control of Satan. It is, by God's decree, Satan's final attempt to express his hatred of all that is holy, to express his hatred of God, and to destroy and to devour all that God has done. And it is to this reality of evil, satanically controlled world ruler, that Jesus draws our attention again in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. And so we're going to con- continue considering this Antichrist both... This week, and then we'll wrap it up next week before we look at the rest of the chapter. However, before I begin our look uh, at the Antichrist, I want to tell you what my three goals are in this message and what our goals uh, should be. What we want to notice as we consider Jesus' explanation and this morning Daniel's explanation of this coming evil system. And the first is this. We need... 
to be discerning of the times in which we live. The goal is that in understanding these things, we would be discerning of the times in which we live. That we would be reminded that we are sojourners, that we are aliens, and that we are strangers in this world. In other words, this world is not our home. This world, as we know it, will be destroyed. Peter reminds us of that in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this, just listen. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be holy in conduct and godliness? And that is the goal. To remember that this is not our home, judgment is the end for this world, Ours is a world yet to come. Therefore, we are to live with holiness and godliness. A second goal is this, that we would understand the absolute sovereignty, the glorious sovereignty of God over his creation, over Satan, over evil, over his people, and over your very life. No matter how chaotic the world may seem, no matter how intimidating and nerve-wracking it can be at times to see evil on the rise and such an outright rejection of righteousness, God's people, we need to remember that God is absolutely sovereign over evil. Indeed, he is the one who gives authority to evil kings and he is the one who brings them down. He is in everything working out an eternal, sovereign plan for his creation. One that will end in his glory and the glory of the Son and his people being forever with him. Though we do not understand much, it is a plan of perfect wisdom. And it is a plan that flows from the very mind of God. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, being Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. That is God's end goal. It is what God will accomplish. It is what God is working towards and it is what he will bring about. A third goal is this. First is that we'd be discerning. Second, that we would understand God is absolutely sovereign over evil. And third is this, to be reminded that no matter what temporary rise God gives to wicked earthly kings, there is only one true king, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, who will reign over all the earth. Listen to the words of the seventh angel in Revelation Chapter 11, verse 15, he says this, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So that is the end. That is the end that God is moving history, moving his creation. And while we think much about the Antichrist and we're considering much about the wickedness and the despicableness that marks this coming period, we must remember that God is yet on his throne. Now, coming back into Matthew chapter 24, I want to begin by reading this passage up to where we left off. And then we'll spend some time reviewing where we've been because we've been away for quite a while. And then we'll cover the last part of Daniel chapter 12, which Jesus makes reference to in Matthew 24, 15. So let's begin, however, by beginning in verse 1, reading Matthew 24, 1 through verse 16. 1 through 16. Jesus came out of the temple... And was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, 
See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore... When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now Jesus is here in Matthew 24 giving an extended answer to a question of the disciples. And the question of the disciples comes in response to or after Jesus' prediction that the temple that they were looking at, Herod's temple, and in many ways, according to earthly standards, a glorious temple, a wonderful temple, that it would, in fact, be destroyed. It would be destroyed. And so in verse 3, they ask, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? If you remember, they are asking here essentially two questions. Essentially two questions. The first is this. What is the time of your coming? When are these things going to take place? And what are the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And in asking that question, we must remember that the disciples, being faithful Old Testament saints at this point, did not understand the two comings of Christ. To them, it was one coming. There was a multiple a series of events, but it was essentially captured in one short period of time. There was one coming of the Messiah. They did understand Messiah's coming or appearance would involve destruction and resistance of the Gentile nations, but they thought it would immediately be followed by the establishment of Israel in her glorious future. One example, of course, of that is Zechariah 14, where these events of Messiah are all spoken of together as one. They did not yet understand that there would be the mystery of the church, that there would be the mystery of an age where Jew and Gentile would come together in the one body of Christ. They did not understand that Christ would be at the right hand of the Father for a period of time and then return and establish judgment and his kingdom on the earth. They did not understand that when they were asking this question. Now, in answering their question, however, Jesus focuses on the last two points, essentially, working backwards, beginning with the last part of it first, discussing then the end of the age, the end of the age. And as was just mentioned, while they thought these things were happening immediately, there is, in fact, going to be a period of time before Jesus brings them about. In other words, Jesus is referring here then to future events. Future events, events that are future not only to the disciples at that time, but events that are future also to us. Now, in verses 4 through 14, Jesus described what he calls, in verse 8, the beginning of birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs. And he's referring then to the first series or complex of events, the first phase of this final period of time that marks the end of the age. What he says in verse 14, and then the end will come. Then the end will come. Now it is important to remember also that Jesus is here focusing primarily on God's intentions towards his own people, the Jews, the covenant nation of Israel. Yes, it involves the nations. Yes, it involves events that will include the Gentiles. But he is primarily here focusing on God's plans in relation to the nation of Israel. 
Now, it's mentioned again earlier that because this is world is fallen and it is a creation that groans using the language of Paul, and because the spirit of Antichrist and the mystery of lawlessness is already present in this world, many of the things that Jesus talks about in verses 4 through 14, in fact, have parallels in our own experiences today. We know much of spiritual charlatans and false teachers and false prophets. We know of devastating earthquakes and natural disasters in our present world and our present experience. We know of unceasing wars. We know of the increased persecution of Christians and God's people globally. However, as terrible as these events are, the events that Jesus speaks of here refer to a heightened, more intense, and global experience of these things that will mark a definitive period of time that he calls the beginning of birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs. And again, after these things, as he says in verse 14, the end will come. Therefore, after the beginnings of these birth pangs, then the full labor pain of God's plans will come about the full labor pains he mentions it this way in verse 21 of chapter 24 then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will that is the time when the full birth of God's intentions and part of his wrath against his rebellious creatures And even, including the judgment of his own nation, Israel, will come about. Look at verses 15 through 16. He marks this period of time, this transition into the great tribulation with these words. We just read, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, just those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Again, Jesus is talking here about a future time, events that are yet to take place. This is a, a time that is specifically again marked out as a great tribulation. Jesus is not talking about the destruction of the temple and the events that surrounded that destruction in 70 A.D. by General Titus. There was, in fact, sacrilege committed by General Titus after he had destroyed the temple and overrun Jerusalem near the end of the Jewish rebellion. But those are not the events that are spoken of here. By way of reminder, I will uh, read to you from Josephus his description of what happened in Titus, because this is indeed only a precursor. And now the Romans, Josephus says, upon the flight of the rebellious into the city and upon the burning of the holy house itself and of all the building around it brought their ensigns into the temple and set them near to its eastern gate. And there they did offer sacrifices to them. There they did make Titus imperator with the greatest acclamations of joy. End quote. Now again, some want to see this as fulfilled as the fulfillment of what Jesus is saying here, fulfillment in 70 AD. However, the cannot have been fulfilled at that time for at least three reasons, and let me just mention to you, remind you of those. One is these events recorded by Josephus happened after the temple was already destroyed, which would make the instructions of Jesus in verses 16 and following down to verse 28 nonsensical. They don't fit the situation. Number two, Titus offered several opportunities for surrender and terms of peace to the Jews after the destruction of the temple, which again would not make sense of Jesus' instructions in verses 16 and following. And finally, thirdly, the destruction of the temple and the following events do not fit Jesus' description in verse 21 of a great tribulation, such that the world has never seen, such as the nation of Israel has never experienced. What exactly then is he talking about? What events is he talking about? And how would the disciples have understood it? Well, again, as noted previously, he gives us a clue in verse 15. Do you see it? He says, what was spoken of through the prophet Daniel. What was spoken of through the prophet Daniel. In other words, these events that Jesus is describing here, though he's expanding on them, are not the first time that they have... Uh, It's not the first time they have been mentioned. 
It's not the first time this period has been talked about and this person who would perpetrate them has been revealed. So in order to understand what Jesus is referring to, we must go back to the book of Daniel, which is where we were in previous weeks, and understand what is the abomination of desolation. It's mentioned three times in the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, 27, chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11. So before getting to chapter 12, verse 11, let's go back to the book of Daniel And be reminded of what we've already seen referring to uh, about this time that Jesus is referring to. Go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And as you're turning there again, let me remind you of two precious truths here that we must not lose sight of in the midst of all that Jesus declares and now the prophet Daniel declares about what's coming on the world. First is this. Consider the fact that God has told us, not only this, but other events, but he has told us the future before it comes to pass. He's told us the future of this world. He's not left us in dark. He's not left us in confusion. He's not left us to be hazy-minded and vague about how we understand this present world and why events are moving in the direction that they are. He has told us. He's given us insight. He's given us understanding so that we could have discernment and hope. And for that, we should be grateful. And number two, because God has declared to us these events, because God has revealed to us the future, because God has told us what is going to take place before it takes place, it also reminds us then that God is in absolute control of that future and therefore of the present. And this should be of immense comfort to us. Not only because of a general understanding that all will work out in the end, but because that same God is in control of our very own lives. He's in control of every detail of our future and of our present, and he is to be trusted. And he will bring us, as he had promised, into his eternal home. When you read Revelation 21 and 22, if you know Christ and the evidence of his life is in you, then you can read that with confidence, knowing whatever happens in my life, this is my end. This is my end. This is what God has saved me unto. Now let's look at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Verse 27 is the actual mention of the abomination of desolation, but it comes in the context of verses 24 through 27. So beginning in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, he says this, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. I want you to notice first, again, that Jesus, or that Daniel is here specifically giving a prophecy by the Holy Spirit about the future of the nation of Israel. So again, this applies specifically to God's plans for the future of the nation of Israel. Notice secondly, that he has given a definite period of time, 70 weeks. As noted before, this is a prophetic week where one day equals one year. So God has 490 years that he's revealing here to accomplish his Plans for the nation of Israel. And notice it is complete. It is until he finishes transgression and brings in everlasting righteousness. It's comprehensive. It is all that God again has attended for his people, Israel. Notice fourthly that God divides these weeks into specific units of time. First 70 weeks, then 62 weeks, and then one week. He does that in verse 25. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's the first two division. And it will be built again with plaza and with moat, even in times of distress. Even in times of distress. 
Now in this first period then, we'll begin with the issuing of a decree, which we argued was the decree of Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., which granted the Jews the right to return to the land, rebuilding the walls and the infrastructure of the city. The second period, 62 weeks, which is 434 years, which brings us to the appearing of the Messiah, supplies us with an amazingly accurate time frame that corresponds to the final week of Jesus' life when he entered into Jerusalem just before the crucifixion. He says then in verse 26, and this is after the 69th week, that the Messiah will be cut off. Look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks... The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. The Messiah cut off refers then to the the crucifixion of Christ, when he was cut off, as it were, from the land of the living, when he was put to death by his own people. Then after that... He mentions that the temple will be destroyed. This is, in fact, a prophecy of what does happen in 70 A.D. under then-General Titus as he came in like a flood, as Daniel says, to bring destruction and havoc and devastation into the land of Jerusalem and to the Jewish nation. And then there's an ongoing period of persecution and destruction that will follow, which is at the end, and to the, even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined, which is an undefined period of time, simply saying that it will be marked by distress and by persecution. It is the time that Luke 21, 24 refers to as the time of the Gentiles, and it is essentially what has defined the history of Israel to this date, up to this point. He then starts in verse 27 with a final week. This is then the 70th week, which covers the period of time and events that Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. It is the seven years of the tribulation period. Now again, we've already covered all the details of this. You can listen online if you want to. I would just remind you of a few things. That Jesus is referring, or Daniel here is referring to a period of time after the destruction of the temple by Titus in 70 AD, after the time of the Gentiles, which Luke mentions, which covers the period at the end of verse 26. He's talking about the final days of God's plans for the nation of Israel, a time when the he, the beginning of verse 27, the Antichrist, will rise, where he will make a false covenant with the nation, which he will betray in the middle of this week, so after three and a half years, Mentioned there at the middle of verse 27. Let me just read that verse. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on one who makes desolate. So this one will arise, he will make a covenant with the people of Israel, it will be a false covenant, it will be a covenant of peace, presumably at the beginning, because it will allow them to rebuild the temple, note that was destroyed in verse 26, in verse 27 it is rebuilt, sacrifices are again taking place, and yet he will break this covenant in the middle of the week and unleash blasphemous, blasphemies and havoc on the nation of Israel. And this fits precisely with the sequence of events in Daniel 7, 24 through 27, Revelation 6 through 20, and Matthew 24, 15 through 28. Precisely. This is when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolations, then you are to flee to the mountains. Why? Because what Daniel prophesied will come true. There will be an abomination of desolation, and there will be destruction on your people such as the world has never known. And afterwards, the Messiah will return in glory from the Father to cut off the Antichrist and establish his kingdom on earth. The second reference we'll look at quickly is in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, in verse 31. In verse 31. Now, as mentioned before, when God gives a prophecy, he also, at times gives events that foreshadow a prophecy, that give events 
that foreshadow the ultimate end at which the original prophecy was aimed, that God is going to bring about. And that's precisely what he does here in Daniel chapter 11, verses 21 through 35. Here, the foreshadowing comes from the historical figure, Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. Now again, there's no way to go through the detail of this prophecy. You can listen online if you want to. But it's helpful to be reminded of a few things as we make our way to this final reference in Daniel chapter 12. After the death of Alexander the Great, his kingdom was divided by, uh, under the rule of four of his generals. One general, Ptolemy, became ruler of the kingdom of the south, which includes England, uh, Egypt, England, Egypt. And then another ruler became... The, the king over the southern uh, part of Alexander's kingdom, which is north of Israel. His name was Seleucus, and he was then, the following kings were Seleucid kings. And one of those was Antiochus, Antiochus IV. He was the ruler of the Seleucid kingdom in the north and is aptly described in verse 21 as a despicable person. Now, the history of his dealings with Israel are marked by overall brutality and forcefully imposing Greek culture upon them to exercise his rule over them. At one point, he killed over 80,000 men and sold as many as 40,000 into slavery as well as robbing from the temple. He also sought to blaspheme God's name by imposing Greek culture and therefore Greek gods to abolish their religion and establish his own rule. The climax of this treachery is mentioned in verses 30 through 31 which came after, in verse 30, a humiliating incident or a confrontation with a Roman general, which sent, as Daniel records for us here, uh, Antiochus IV back against the Jewish nation, enraged and with the intent of utterly destroying their Jewish identity and religion to establish his own and establish his own rule. So the blasphemy that is recorded or referred to by Jesus is specifically recorded in verse 31. And he will desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now the specific atrocities are recorded in detail in the books of Maccabees and Josephus. Let me read for you just one account by way of reminder from Josephus. He says this of these events. And when the king had built an idol altar upon God's altar, he killed swine upon it, and so offered a sacrifice neither according to the law nor the Jewish religious worship in that country. He also compelled them to forsake the worship which they paid their own God and to adore those whom he took to be gods and made them build temples and raise idol altars, altars every, through every city and village and offer swine upon them every day. He also commanded them not to circumcise their sons and threatened to punish any that should be found to have transgressed his injunction. They were whipped with rods and their bodies were torn to pieces. They were crucified while they were still alive and breathed. They also strangled those women and their sons whom they had circumcised as the king had appointed, hanging their sons about their neck as they were upon the crosses. And if there was any sacred book of the law found, it was destroyed. And those with whom they were found miserably perished also. End quote. In other words, these were atrocities that stretch the human imagination. They were atrocities that were specifically motivated by one who wanted to destroy the Jewish nation, the Jewish God, and the Jewish religion, and anything that raised up a threat to his own authority over that land. But here's the crucial point. As terrible as these events were, as devastating as they were to the nation of Israel, they were not the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 27, which came after the destruction of the temple and ended with the complete destruction of the aggressor. Indeed, the atrocities of Antiochus IV were followed by the Maccabean Rebellion, which three years later had cleansed the temple and reinstituted proper worship at the temple of God. And this, of course, didn't bring in everlasting righteousness for the kingdom that flowed out of the Maccabean Revolt. 
eventually fell into the same overall spiritual decay that had defined them before. So this cannot then be talking about the final one who is to come. He was a foreshadowing. He did terrible and blasphemous events, but they only pale in comparison to what is going to come by this final one. Now I want to make one last point here, and then we'll briefly look at Daniel chapter 12. There's a transition that takes place between verses 35 and 36 of Daniel chapter 11. He ends verse 35... Or just in verse 35, he says, And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end of time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. So in other words, those events were not what he was talking about before there are yet events to come. He then, in verse 36, begins with new and astounding acts of arrogance. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Note there, again, that which is decreed will be done, decreed by God. God is in absolute control. But this, tra- this change that begins in verse 36 is striking because on the heels of such a very precise prophetic look at the career of Antiochus IV and the history of Jerusalem, nothing in verses 36 through 45 fits the history after the death of Antiochus. Nothing fits the history of the nation of Israel or the career of Antiochus as it is laid out in the details that are laid out in verses 36 through 45. And the reason is, it's not talking about Antiochus. There's a change, there's a switch that has come about in this prophetic outlook. We maintain then that beginning in verse 36, the prophet, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is now looking to the final evil ruler, the Antichrist, that was foreshadowed, that was anticipated, that was in some ways pictured in the evil deeds of Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth, he is the evil ruler who will rise during the 70th week, who will bring about the greatest destruction on God's people. Now, you might just notice at first, why then does verse 36 begin with the word then? It's simply marking a time marker that notes these are events that follow the previous events. It doesn't give any direct Uh, It doesn't signify any direct amount of time, simply saying these events are going to follow the previous uh, events. We've noted before that this is what happens when God gives prophecy, oftentimes of telescoping. In other words, where he looks at multiple events, but he reveals them or he speaks about them in the prophetic word as one event. Only as his plan unfolds do we realize that these are, in fact, distinct events separated by a period of time. So this final king then, even more than Antiochus, will be the very embodiment of evil and be under the full control of Satan to do his will and fulfill his desire to destroy. Again, he was mentioned back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. This one, he is the one who will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into His hand by God for time, times, and half a time. Speaking of the three and a half years mentioned earlier. And we'll look in this in more detail next week when we consider Revelation chapter 13 and 2 Thessalonians 2.4. But note here simply this, that verses 36 through 45 cover the career of the Antichrist during the final three and a half years of his reign on earth and over Israel to persecute her. And the main thing to understand at this point is that Daniel is laying out in some detail the final day determined for Israel and not for this present age. In other words, for the, for the time that God has set aside for his unique time of destruction and judgment, not only on his people, but on the world. Now look down then at the beginning of chapter 12. Chapter 12. 
He says in verse 1, Now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress. Such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Notice verse 2, because verse 2 is included in at that time. At that time that he's talking about. At that time that includes also the end of what began in verse 36 and carried on through verse 45. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This is a time that has never been experienced by another nation and never will again. Again, reminding of Jesus' words in verse 21, this is a great tribulation, it is a unique time, it will be followed by no other time like it. It is the destruction to end all destructions against his people. And after this destruction, again in verse 2, he noted that there will be a resurrection. Those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, some to everlasting life, some to contempt. This is a resurrection of life and a resurrection unto eternal death, the second death. Note here, then, two resurrections, which is precisely what John anticipated in Revelation chapter 20. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. In the first resurrection. Those are the ones who will be enjoying the blessedness of the kingdom. Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It is those in the second resurrection there of Revelation 20 who will be everlastingly destroyed and punished. And Daniel is speaking again of two events as one. Two stages of the same event of the resurrection or the same work of God in the resurrection. Then he says in verse 4, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and any knowledge will increase. What does he mean by this? Well, essentially here, he's telling Daniel to preserve and to keep the words of this prophecy safe until the time of their completion. Safe until the time of God fulfilling all that he has just revealed to you in relation to his people. But notice, interestingly, he mentions it again in verse 9, except he changes it. He says in verse 9, he says, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. And what does he mean by this? These words being sealed up until the end of time. Until the end of Todd's fulfillment of all these things. The basic idea is this, that these events are far into the future and they cannot be completely understood yet. They cannot be completely understood until the coming of the Messiah, until the other events that were mentioned in verse 25 through 26 of Daniel chapter 9. It's not unlike Jesus' words to his disciples in John 16 and 12 where he says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Why? Because there are events yet to take place. And until they take place, you will not understand them. And particularly also until the coming of the Spirit, you will not yet know all that God has prepared. He mentions that same thing three times actually in the Gospels. You do not, that they do not understand, because yet these events are to take place. The point is this, that until Christ comes in the flesh, until God fulfills his prophetic word to send the Son to go to the cross after living a righteous life, to bear on that cross our sin and the punishment for our sin until he raises him from the dead, until he ascends to the right hand of the Father, these things are not going to be completely understood. God is concealing them. And it is interesting then also by contrast that the final words of Revelation say this. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book for the time is near. The time is near. Now what will mark these times? Look at verse 11. He tells us. He says, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolations is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 13... 
1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. After the final three and a half years mentioned in Daniel's 70th week, the prophecy of the 70th week, the time particularly or specifically marked out by Jesus, then the end will come. Then the end will come. Now he makes an interesting note here regarding the days. I'm sure you caught that before verses, in verses 11 and verses 12. There's a discrepancy, or not a discrepancy, but there's two different time periods that are given. The first is he says that there will be 1,290 days, but how blessed is he who is waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Why this difference of 45 days? Why this difference of 45 days? Daniel has already mentioned that the period from the end of the sacrifices to the end of the three hundred or three and a half years is 1,260 days. That's repeated in Revelation 11.2, Revelation 12.6. We'll look at that next week. The time where the Israelites, the true Israelites, will be nourished after fleeing from the Antichrist and the destruction that he brings. But now, interestingly, then, Daniel adds on 30 days to those 1,260 days and then 45 more days to reach 1,335 without any further explanation. Why does he do this? What's taking place during those days? What's happening during those 45 days here? Well, there are several possibilities. I'm just going to mention them to you. It's possible that these extra days include a time for judgment of the nations which takes place when Christ returns. At Matthew 25, that is recorded for us in verses 32 through 33. It's possible that the judgment of the sheep and the goats takes place at this time, and that's the period of time that God has set aside to do that. It could also be, secondly, that it's a time for celebration of the Feast of Booths mentioned in Zechariah 14, 16 through 21. It could be the time that God brings about all these incredible changes that mark the earth and all of the nations at this time of the millennial kingdom where all of a sudden the desert places are turned into fertile lands and these magnificent changes to the earth come. It could be then that God is accomplishing those things. It could be a time for the cleansing of the land and the gathering of God's people to Jerusalem who were preserved and not destroyed at the time of the tribulation during the time mentioned also in Ezekiel 37. Which one of those is it? Well, it's hard to be certain. All of them are possibilities, and it may be that there's some kind of combination of them all. But whatever it is, Daniel is looking forward here to a glorious future time. A time when God will enact his judgment through his Messiah, through his Christ, where he will establish his glorious kingdom. And this will, after the destruction, then be for God's people a time of great rejoicing. For Israel, for those who are regenerated, for those who have been called, for those who are the elect of the covenant nation of Israel, of the Jewish people, it will be a time to know the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Abraham. For the Gentiles, those who are the elect, who are called from the foundation of the world, who are regenerated and made new and in union with Christ, who are resurrected and who have been grafted into the vine of the true Israel, they too will share in this time and partake of the blessings of Abraham. This is a time that the writer John has told us about will last for 1,000 years and be the time just before the coming in of those great passages that we read this morning in Revelation 21 through 22, when God is finished with this present creation and he brings in a new heavens and a new earth and is forever united with his people. As a matter of fact, let's end just by being reminded of those verses. While Jesus is referring in Revelation chapter 21... While there is a great time of destruction coming, while there is a great increase of evil, while there is a terrible time of the destruction of God's people that are alive during this period of time, who will be brought to faith during this period of time, those who are the great multitude taken out of the tribulation, the great tribulation, giving praise to God for his redemption, 
While that is true, while the Antichrist will rise, that is not the end for God's people. This is the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That's the end for those of us who know Christ. And while we who know Christ in this present age will be taken away to be with Christ, to meet him forever in the air, the encouragement is to be faithful still because though the time of the Antichrist is a unique time, we certainly will feel the brunt of an increase in the wickedness of evil that is preparing for that kingdom of the coming one that will be ultimate. We understand that in our own nation. We see it in our own world. And the encouragement to us as to them is to be faithful even unto death. Be faithful even unto death. Have confidence in the Lord and serve him to the end, who is our King of kings and Lord of lords. Now we'll wrap up this next week as we look at Revelation 13. Let's pray and end our service this morning. Our Father, you have given us so much to consider, so much that is in many ways bleak, and we can understand that because this is a fallen world, and sin is present, and sin is a reality of this fallen creation. Certainly we would expect judgment would come, and that's exactly what you reveal to us. But we praise you that that is not the end. And I also would ask you, our Father, that for those here who are not a part and have no claim of that coming kingdom because they have no claim and no part in Christ, they have not yet turned from their sin. They have not yet understood that this world is being destroyed and felt seriously the reality of their guilt and the rightness of their being destroyed with it, and cried out to you for the hope and the mercy and the grace and the cleansing that is in Christ, and haven't clothed themselves yet with Christ and his righteousness and his life. I pray that you would work powerfully in their hearts and bring them to that place, that place of repentance, that place of trust, that place of new life. And we do pray for the rest of us that we would be worshipers to the end, that we would not love our life even unto death, that we would be encouraged to live faithfully with abandon, knowing that our end is the fulfillment of all of our desires, which is you yourself and being in your presence. Do these things and work these things powerfully in our souls and in our minds and in our affections. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.